This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Law School Show. My name is Amos Van, and I will be your host for this episode. One of the most important skills of a legal professional, and really any professional, is leadership. Whether it may be the leader of a new law firm, a business, or charitable organization, that leader must have a vision. That leader must be ready to take on the tasks of today that will affect the events of tomorrow. But what about a country? What about leading an entire country? What about the issues and problems that affect an entire country? Well, my guest for today is a man that has led an entire country. My guest is Canada's 21st Prime Minister, the Right Honourable Paul Martin. Mr. Martin was born in 1938 in Windsor, Ontario, Canada. He would live his early childhood in Windsor until 1946, where his family moved to Ottawa. His father, Paul Martin Sr., was a lawyer, member of parliament, and cabinet minister for the Liberal Party. Mr. Martin, the younger Mr. Martin, would go on to graduate from the University of Toronto with an honors degree in philosophy in 1962. In 1965, Mr. Martin graduated with a Bachelor of Laws from the University of Toronto's Law School. He would also enjoy an outstanding career after law school. In 1966, Mr. Martin was called to the Ontario Bar, and in that same year, he joined the Power Corporation of Canada and had worked for Maurice Strong and Paul Desmarais. In just three years, Mr. Martin would be appointed Vice President of Power Corporation. In 1973, he became president of Canada Steamship Lines, and after many years of experience in the business sector, Mr. Martin began his career in politics. In 1988, Mr. Martin ran in the federal election for the Liberal Party as an MP for La Salle Emald, and would be elected to that position as a part of the Liberal opposition against progressive Conservative Prime Minister Brian Mulroney's majority government. From 1993 to 2002, Mr. Martin served as finance minister in Liberal Prime Minister Jean Chrétien's majority government. In 1999, Mr. Martin co-founded the G20 finance ministers and central bank governors. Mr. Martin would serve as finance minister until the end of Monsieur Chrétien's third term. And on December 12, 2003, Mr. Martin became Canada's 21st prime minister. Mr. Martin would serve as Prime Minister until 2006. After retiring from politics, he would establish the Capital for Aboriginal Prosperity and Entrepreneurship Fund, the Cape Fund, and the Martin Family Initiative, the MFI. Mr. Martin's objectives in both the Cape Fund and the MFI are to work with Indigenous leaders, governments, and the private sector in improving the education, health, and overall well-being of the next generation of Indigenous peoples in Canada. Additionally, he was a founding co-chair of the Congo Basin Forest Fund and was a commissioner of the Global Ocean Commission. He also advised the African Development Bank 
and worked closely with the Advisory Council of the Coalition for Dialogue on Africa. Thanks to all of his work, in 2012, he was appointed Companion to the Order of Canada. Wow, that is a lot of experience across so many different industries. A leader for many decades, the Right Honorable Paul Martin is my guest today. Mr. Martin, thank you so much for coming on on the show. Well, Amos, thank you very much for having me. But um, let me ask you, this is, um, you're, you're at law school. You go to the University of Ottawa Law School. Yes. What you forgot in that very lengthy um, curriculum vitae is that I graduated from the University of Ottawa High School. Oh, really? Oh, that's really interesting. So, so what was it like, uh, University of Ottawa High School? What was it like? Because I, I actually haven't heard of that school. school. I mean, my apologies. I, I missed that part. So what was it like back then? Well, I'm assuming that the, the high school still exists. It's, um, it, it, the high school is in, was in what is the main Ottawa University building, the building with the, uh, with the, uh, the pillars. Uh, now, I don't know if the high school is still there, but uh, it was, in fact, uh, in terms of the, the, the French language, it was the leading French high school in Ontario at that time. Wow. That, that's amazing. That's very, very interesting. So you certainly have a very, very close connection with the University of Ottawa itself. Well, and, and with the Oblies. Yeah. <laughs> and moving on from then, let's go just a little few years forward. This is still roughly the 1960s, 50s or 60s or so. What inspired you to go to law school? Well, um, my father uh, was a lawyer, and so that uh, there is obviously a bit of a family uh, understanding of what, what uh, lawyers did and what they, uh, they did. I, um, I didn't really know when I graduated from university um, what it is that I wanted to do. Um, however, I did know that almost anything that I would want to do, that law would be a, the best background that I could get. Um, and uh, so uh, I took law, knowing that if I took law, I could become a lawyer. Um, I could uh, go into business. Um, I could do pretty well anything I wanted, except maybe play professional football, but that's not because I was a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, that's actually a very similar reasoning to what a lot of law students even nowadays point to when it comes to them going to law school. For me, that was also the same thing. For me, one of the main reasons why I wanted to go to law school was because it was very versatile. It was a very versatile degree with a lot of different skills. And you essentially have to be well-versed in a whole diverse range of subjects, not just the law, but also in business and technology, especially nowadays with the information era really going into full force. And that was, again, one of my own, my main, main reasons why I went to law school as well. Well, I can tell you, and I can tell you something, Amos, um, whether, it, it, whether it was because I went into business um, and into the shipping business, ultimately, after being in the finance business, or whether it's because I went into government, regardless, whatever I did, um, 
I have found the law degree of huge benefit. And I'm very, very glad that I made that choice. And it certainly is. I mean, again, looking at all the experiences, as we will get into later on in this episode, it's really a testament to just how far you have come with a law degree. And what many people can do, anyone with a law degree can really do as long as they put their mind to that hard work. How did you prepare for the transition from undergrad to law school? uh, There wasn't any preparation. I've got an honors degree in philosophy and history. Um, And then, uh, and I did this at the University of Toronto. Um, And then I walked across the street and I went to the law school. It was as easy as that. And, uh, and I'm very, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, I'm, I'm really glad that I did. So how was the workload back then? Because today, a lot of law students talk about the transition from their undergraduate degree or master's degree or even their PhD to law school. And they talk about it as a huge adjustment period, mainly in terms of the workload nowadays in the 2020s with just the sheer amount of work that's being thrown at, at us, especially in our first year law school. Back then, what were the most difficult challenges that you faced as you went into your first year of law school? Well, the, the difference, I guess, essentially was that you had to, you had to show up in class at law school. Um, whereas when you're doing, do, doing your undergraduate work, um, I, I don't, don't want to admit this, but sometimes one did not show up in class. Um, and um, the, the, the workload was quite steady. Whereas when you're doing undergraduate work, especially in something like philosophy and, and history, there is not that constant uh, need to produce. Um, but uh, I, and I, I must say, I found law in itself quite interesting. I, the fact is that, you know, when, you, when you're studying philosophy, or when you're studying history, you're trying to get down to the basic root of whatever it is that you're looking at. Philosophy is the basic root of who we are. Um, and uh, history is obviously uh, the basic root of who we are in a very different way. But so is law. So is law. Um, and in, especially when you're studying the common law, you're going way back uh, in, in, into history. And so I, I found quite a, from a, an academic point of view, I found law very interesting. And it certainly is also a number of students who went to law school also found it to be a very interesting academic experience nowadays. Some of them would go on to pursue, pursue a master of laws and later an SJD, a, a doctor of juridical science, because of, like you said, Mr. Martin, so many different ways in which the law affects society. And I mentioned this in previous episodes, but the law is a reflection in many ways of human society itself. And it, it reflects a lot of the imperfections as well. And it really also reflects the ability that we are able to do to adapt. Of course, the law being not as fast when it comes to adapting. But to me, it's a great reflection, once again, of what humans are capable of and what we can do to really help each other and to regulate ourselves and to, well, bring ourselves into a better time and to have better lives for each other, at least from my personal experience. Well, especially when you're when you're talking about common law, uh, which which does reach, uh, reach reaches deeply back uh, into into history. Uh, so I think that, but I agree with what you're saying. And after law school, and after you passed the Ontario bar, you already made waves in your career by going into business. 
you would work for Paul Desmarais at the Paul at the Power Corporation, rather of Canada. Nowadays, more and more lawyers and legal professionals work in industries outside of the legal practice, and thus it's becoming a lot more common. But back in the '60s, I wasn't so so sure if such a career move was very common. Back then, when you went straight over to business and not into legal practice, what was the general reaction in your own social circle? What did your family and friends initially think when you didn't go into a legal practice and you went to business? Well, they were not they were, they were not surprised. But I'll, I'll I'll tell you what happened. Fundamentally, there was a man by the name of Morris Strong who's um, a great Canadian, one of Canada's first environmentalists, someone who had been very, very actively involved in third world development. And I had decided uh, early on that I wanted to go to Africa and that I wanted to work in Africa. I talked to him about this and he said that I should, I better learn a little bit about business before I did. And uh, so I said, fine. Uh, I think I'll do that. How do I learn about business? And he said, look, I'll hire you as my executive assistant. He at that time was the president of Power Corp. Uh, And then uh, subsequently, uh, so I went and became his his, uh, executive assistant. He resigned from Power Corp not too long after that. And uh, Paul Demeray, who I have huge, for whom I have huge admiration, uh, actually took the controlling interest of Power Corporation, and I worked for Paul Demeray. And uh, all of along, on this basis, I wanted to learn about business. It turned out that I had a bit of a knack, um, and uh, I obviously never practiced law. Wow. That's... But I found, I found the legal degree uh, very, very helpful uh, in business. It certainly is. And we would see that very early on, as, as you mentioned in your time with, with Power Corporation, for those of you in the audience who are not familiar with Monsieur Paul Desmarais, he was a legendary individual in Quebec, especially in the world of business and politics. Legendary individual in Canada. Yes. In fact, interna- internationally. Yes, exactly. He would lead the corporation, the Power Corporation, to essentially a multi-billion dollar net worth and would become a world leader in business management and wealth management as well. Three prime ministers were professionally connected with them. Brian Mulroney, Jean Chrétien, and of course, Mr. Martin, as, as the audience knows by now. So, Mr. Martin, what was it like working for, for Monsieur Desmarais? What were some of the most important lessons that you learned in your time working for him? Well, I, I think maybe the best thing is I can tell you a story. Um, I, uh, what happened was that... Um, I was assigned by Power Corporation to working in some of the subsidiary companies. So I was in the pulp and paper business for a while. I was in the construction business. And then um, he asked if I would become, uh, get involved with Canada Steamship Lines, which was the shipping business. Um, And eventually I became the president of the company. And um, at one point uh, I appeared in front of the board I had to I described something and I said I'm going to I'm going to lay this out the way that it is and somebody said well you know you shouldn't tell the board all that story and I uh, then said to Paul Demery look at this is a tough story I've got to tell um, and I think I've got to tell it to which Paul Demery said if you're going to succeed in business honesty and being forthright is by far the single most important thing and that was Paul Demery 
And it's why I had such an admiration for him. And that is such an important lesson to learn and to remember even now. That is a lesson that I think is a lesson that will never change across any time period. And honesty is something that we absolutely need, especially in the legal practice, legal practice and business, because that's how we can grow, not just the business, but ourselves in a professional and personal manner as well. Now, of course, the truth is not always easy to hear, but it's being able to have that thick skin, being able to have that ability to take the, the cold, hard truth and to be able to improve yourself on top of that. And I think that's such an important thing to keep in mind, regardless of the profession that anyone good, is in. Good for you. Good for you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, so with those lessons in your time at Canada Steamship Lines, the old saying comes in, with great power comes great responsibility. Being a vice president or a president of a company is not easy at all, let alone being a vice president or a president of a company that possesses millions or billions of dollars in capital and a strong reputation on the line. So there are a lot of responsibilities tasked with such roles. So how does your legal training help you in traversing all of these responsibilities? How did it help you lead the Power Corporation and the Canada Steamship Lines? Well, this, first of all, in terms of up Canada Steamship Lines, I had, as a young man, I had worked as a deckhand on ships, both ocean ships and on lake ships, and I had a love affair with, with ships, uh, which is why I was so happy to go into, uh, into Canada Steamship Lines. And essentially, uh, eventually what happened was, along with a partner, I bought Canada Steamship Lines from Power Corporation. Um, but it, it, the, 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 legal, the legal background, obviously, so much of what business is, is doing deals, either building, it, building ships, um, buying ships, or working in business. The law is the under, is, it provides the, the basis for all of this. And so that while I never was my own lawyer, I always had enough brains to, to find a lawyer from outside. Um, the ability to understand the legal system uh, was a perfect background for business, as it obviously was uh, when I went into uh, when I went into government. And I'll tell you something else, if I might. It's also because I'm now spending an enormous amount of my time on the Indigenous file. Um, uh, law is important there. One of the great things I'm delighted to hear about my old school is that the the University of Ottawa Law School has really a section on Aboriginal law. And I've got to say, I congratulate you for that. Yeah, well, I mean, I, yeah, it, it's certainly a, a, an improvement for the University uh, of Ottawa Law School. And for those in the audience who aren't familiar with this particular aspect of the law school, there are actually numerous courses that you can take in terms of understanding Indigenous legal traditions and understanding the legal issues that surround Aboriginal law. And there's actually an option for common law students, for JD students who want to get an in-depth and practical experience in Aboriginal law. So this is, in my opinion, a good start. But of course, it's a start and there has to be a lot more. Of course, we can always find ways to do better. We can always find ways to improve. the. Yes, except that what it also shows is that you're, you are ahead of your time. And that's a, that is a, tr a very powerful place to be. Um, you know, essentially, the as a country, we have not been fair to the indigenous people. 
Uh, we understand that in terms of healthcare, in terms of education. The fact is that that wheel is now turning. And um, we are an aging population. Um, indigenous people are the youngest, the fastest growing segment of our population. They are going to be major factors. And I believe that indigenous law is going to become more and more important. And I must say, AutoU is ahead of the, really ahead of the, the, the market on this. They really are ahead of the, the market on, on this. And one other thing I also want to point out in terms of just the growing aspect of understanding towards indigenous legal traditions and issues surrounding indigenous peoples is that especially now in my generation, in the millennial slash Gen Z generation, we are having a lot more people who have the youth and the energy to really go forward with these initiatives of helping indigenous peoples and also bringing their issues up to the forefront. Even our legal traditions now have been in, in, influenced. And I would even argue that it's been influenced actually quite a few years ago, back in probably at least 2000, when you were, when you were uh, prime minister, actually. One of the things that comes to mind is the YCJA, the Youth Criminal Justice Act, which, uh, which applies a lot of restorative justice elements, a, yes. lot, of, a lot of non-punitive types of initiatives, which encourage the youth offender, the, the young offender, to be on the right track. And that's something that, I don't want to say, well, it, it kind of did revolutionize the way how we approached youth offending and approached prosecuting youth offenders. Because well, let me just pick up then. on, let me just, let me just pick up on that. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And you can understand restorative justice when you take a look at, when you look at the history of the indigenous people living in the communities in which they, in which they were, restorative justice was by far the best thing. It's the one thing that kept the community together. It's the one thing that, that enabled the community to take advantage uh, of some of the problems uh, that, that, that were there. You're also going to find indigenous law in this whole question of the threat to biodiversity, that threat uh, by imposed upon us by climate change. But biodiversity, the protection of the land, the protection of, of, of water is going to be absolutely crucial. There's a, a group of indigenous people called the guardians who essentially are working on that. And there's an opportunity for anybody who studies Aboriginal law to basically make a mark for themselves. And you, you've got that opportunity, and I hope you take advantage of it. I certainly will, and I'm very sure a lot of our audience members will, will take opportunities. And speaking about opportunities, going back to your career, business would not be the end. After leading the Corp Power Corporation and after leading the Canada Steamship Lines, you went into politics and you ran for the riding of La Salle Malte. What inspired you to pursue politics? And why did you pursue politics after so many years in the business world? I had, when I was younger, I had no intention of going into politics. I, I understood politics. My father was in, in politics uh, and I had no intention. Um, I then, as you say, went to went to law school then i went to power corporation then i bought canada steamship lines with a partner um and i spent uh, a long of my time on, on business and i was able to fulfill my dream to start working in africa uh which i which i wanted to do and it became fairly obvious to me which i probably had known as a younger person that you can do if you what you want to do is to do good you can, and you can get yourself into a position in, in politically uh, where you can do it. You can do more in five minutes in government 
than you can do elsewhere. And I had decided that I'd had this career in business. I'd had, and I, I, I love business, uh, but there comes a time when you got to pay back. And uh, this was how I was going to do it. Paying back is what public service is about. It's in the name, public service. So you serve the community and you serve the communities in your writing, first of all. And second of all, of course, equally as important, because you're at the federal level, you also serve the entire country in your capacity as, as an MP. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, your father, Paul Martin Sr., was a member of parliament, and he worked for Prime Ministers William Lyon Mackenzie King, Louis Saint Laurent, Lester, P- uh, Lester B. Pearson, and Pierre Trudeau. And your father served as Minister of National Health and Welfare and also the Secretary of State for External Affairs. So your father enjoyed a lot of political success, and some would even credit him alongside Tommy Douglas with being the fathers of the Canadian healthcare system as we know it. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. So what were the most important lessons that you learned from your father when you were pursuing your political career? That, that, that in fact, um, the, first of all, the role of government uh, is to enable the country to succeed. And the only way the country can succeed is if the people of the country succeed. Now, what does that tell you? And this is something that I had proven to myself, but it certainly initially came from my father, that you can talk about economic policy and social policy, but the fact of the matter is they are one and the same thing. People will say, why are you spending money on social policy? What are you spending it on? You're spending it on education. Well, what's the most important instrument for business? It's education. Um, so is, is, is healthcare only social policy? Well, then I got in a, in a country that is now beset by COVID-19. Healthcare is, an, it, it, the economic consequences of, of, a, of illness is huge. So essentially what government has to do is to make sure that the country is doing as well as it possibly can. And that means education. It means healthcare. It means understanding that what we've got to do is get behind each other. And it also means that the role that Canada can play internationally, which is where I now spend a fair amount of my time, and as you talked about Africa, and then my, I don't think we talked about the G20 that much, but I can tell you, I believe that that is an area, that was a Canadian creation, and I believe it's an area where the world is going to come together. It's very divided right now, you know that as well as I do. And I think the G20 has got to be the body that brings us back together, and I think Canada will play the role in making it happen. It certainly will. And as you mentioned, education being one of the most important pillars of, of Canadians, of Canadian society, the phrase, the old phrase comes to mind, give a man a fish and you feed him for a day. Teach a man a fish and you feed him for a lifetime. That's essentially what education is about. You know, you, you, you teach the next generation of Canadians the skills, the lessons that they need to learn to thrive in the next generation of Canadian society. And they can go miles. They can go a country mile in their careers and really taking a lot of inspiration from even previous generations such as yourself as well. When you started out politics, how did your leadership experience with the Power Corporation and the Canada Steamship Lines, how did that leadership and legal training help you in your time at Parliament Hill, particularly in the first few years of your political career? Well, uh, there's no doubt that my time 
in business uh, had something to do with me becoming a finance minister. Um, and so, um, and, but, but I also feel that, and, and I used it, the law degree, I, let's not kid ourselves. I was, I had the law degree. I was a member of the Ontario bar, but I was a lawyer in theory. Uh, I had never practiced. Um, but certainly giving that understanding of the law enabled me, obviously, to understand the Constitution better, uh, uh, enabled me to understand the issues that I was going to face better. And, of course, when you put that together with, with business, um, it was not probably illogical that I would become finance minister. Take us back to that first time stepping into Parliament as an MP. Take us back to your first time walking into the House of Commons and what I would like to call the halls of the stage of history. What was it well, like? Don't, don't forget, um, this was not my first time. Um, my, my, I would, we, we moved, my, uh, I mean, I was born and raised in the early years in, in Windsor. Um, I caught polio when I was about eight, and then I was out for about a year. And then we moved, because my father went into the cabinet, we moved to Ottawa. We would go back to Windsor in the summertime. So I would go down often to watch my father in Parliament, usually at night, uh, because he used to have night sittings. So I've, I've got to say that probably I had a pretty good feel, uh, having grown up that way, to, to, have seen, to have seen Parliament, to have seen some of the great, some of the great speeches. Um, and, uh, so it wasn't, in fact, it was sort of a, was a sort of a bit of a thrill to come in as an adult, something that I'd seen as a, as a child. So it was kind of like coming back to a second home for you. Well, I, yeah, I, I probably a bit of an exaggeration, but it's not bad. It's better than <laughs> anything I've come up with. <laughs> and having seen your father in action through so many different years of public service, and comparing his time as a member of parliament and cabinet minister and to your time as member of parliament and cabinet minister, what did you find were the similarities and differences between being a cabinet minister in World War II or just after World War II and being a cabinet minister right near the end of the Cold War? Well, I think that there were a number of there, there are a number of differences. I watched my father, and you mentioned this in the introduction. My father was very actively involved in the creation of the Canada, Canada Health Care Act, and he was a, a longtime minister uh, of health. And so I saw the building up of that whole social basis. He was also the Minister of Foreign Affairs. I went with my dad to the United Nations, um, as he, where he was very active. So I saw that whole, that whole thing growing. Um, and I'm, I'm one of the unfortunate things in my in my time in government, um, Parliament was still a very civil place, um, and the building um, Canada's role in the world was very clear, and we've had a very important role. Um, my time uh, in government in Parliament. Um, Parliament was also a civil place, um, but in the later years, I began to see some of the some of the problems eating away. Um, the The fact is that the debates became far more personal. Uh, friendships across the uh, across the floor were not the same way, um, and I think that actually it was healthier in my dad's time. It was healthier mostly in my time as well. But some of that 
had be, that eating away had begun. And I think it's one of the things, I think two things. I think the parliament's got to restore um, uh, the situation. We're a heck of a lot better than the United States in that, in, that, in that way. But nonetheless, I think we could be doing better. And I also believe that Canada played a very important role under Mr. Pearson and under my dad. Um, and I think that that role can, can be played. I'm very actively involved. Uh, in, with the G20 still today, I believe that the G20, um, given the fact that we've got to now fight a, a pandemic uh, on the one hand, the climate change on the other, I think that, that the G20 uh, has got to really take both of those and make that the center of their activity. This, this is, think about this in terms of, of uh, whether it's COVID-19 or uh, whether it's climate change. We've all seen the problems, the differences between nations have created. Going back into the earliest of history, it was nation against nation. Today, for the first time, humanity as a whole is being challenged. That's COVID uh, and that's climate change. And the world has got to work together. We can no longer aff afford to have this vicious fights between nations because the fact is COVID-19 will eat us up and so will climate change unless we work together. And we're seeing a lot of that cooperation happening right now, especially with COVID-19. Ever since the pandemic was officially announced back in March, officially designated as a pandemic rather, at least for me, having only lived maybe something 20 something years on, on this earth, I've had a chance to see a kind of unity that I personally have have not seen before where, you know, political opponents are working together to really help Canadians and to help not, not just Canadians in terms of Canada helping its own Canadian parliament, helping its own Canadians, but also other governments trying their absolute hardest to, to help their constituents as well. Now, of course, the extent to which it's, it's actually helping is debatable and it's, it's contextual in terms of, uh, the effects on the community, but just the, the very symbolic nature of people working together, that's something that is kind of refreshing for me to see. Well, I, I certainly agree with your wish. Um, I, I'm not sure that that's reality. And when you think about it, the World Health Organization, um, where countries have dropped away, um, and the World Health Organization is crucial. We've got to get behind the World Health health organization the research has got to be tripled it's got to be and they've got to be working with the independent national researchers there can be no longer research for one country that is not going to benefit another because these diseases are all so contagious that, that in fact that you have to do it in terms of climate change um you know the fact is that the g20 came up with the paris accord supported the paris accord and then all of a sudden the united states walked away well you can't I want to tell you that if every country doesn't face up to climate change, then every country is going to face it. And I, I think that, I actually think that we've got a long way to go. And I think Canada can play a real role in, in helping us get there. And that's certainly an opportunity that we'll, we'll have to see with what the future holds and, uh, who, and the current leaders in, in office and everyone just working together, not just in office, but even in, at, the, at the local level, level, the communities in each city, in each region of each city, we're going to have to see a lot of, of what we can do on the grassroots level and to be able to help each other during this very difficult time. Well said.
So going back to your experiences in your time as cabinet minister, as finance minister in particular, how did your business and entrepreneurial experiences help you in your time as finance minister? Well, I think it's, they just gave me a basic understanding of the economy. And so that, I mean, I understood what, uh, at least I feel that I understood uh, what it took to make the economy function um, and how, in fact, it had to be developed and how the absolute crucial aspect was, was really two things. Number the first by far was people. That's why the education of young people was so important. And the second was infrastructure, because the, more, the better the infrastructure, the more people were going to be able to do. And that had to be the basis. Uh, and that, that then was reflected in healthcare, was reflected in our, 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 the position we took on the major issues facing the world. Um, there you go. That actually reminds me of a former Democratic presidential candidate, Andrew Yang, who ran on a platform of human-centered capitalism. Now, just to be clear, this is not a political endorsement. I just wanted to post this, bring this information out here because I found it very interesting. And, and just given that even though he first talked about this last year, it still rings true in my mind with a lot of what I've been hearing from you as well. Now, the human-centered capitalism, for those who aren't familiar with it, is composed of three tenets. First of all, humans are more important than money. Second of all, the unit of a human capitalism economy is each person, not each dollar. And thirdly, markets exist to serve our common goals and values. Now, to me, prioritizing humans first is essentially one of the first things that, at least to me, at least, I mean, you can disagree with me if, if, if you'd like. To me, it seemed like what you were trying to get at with your vision with handling the economy back in the 90s. And to me, it's actually quite interesting, but I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm, if I'm on the right track here or, again, feel free to disagree with me with my observations if you think uh, if it's... Uh... <laughs> no, you are, you, you are, you are, on, you are on, the, on, on the right track. And I think what you'll find in almost any political leader anywhere in the world will understand that within the borders of his or her own country. But now where we've got to cross... With, with things like COVID-19 and the future pandemics which are going to come, we're going to feel, and um, climate change, we've got to understand that the, the, the respect and the focus on people has got to go beyond the border because we can't, no country, no country has the power now to deal with the issues that we're talking about unless all countries come together. And that, and that means all people have got to come together. And that's very much a human goal, not just a political goal, but a human goal. You know, outside, yeah. outside, outside of all politics, regardless of your politics, whether you're liberal, conservative, left or right wing, I think this standing together in a time of hardship against essentially an enemy that is not even seen, an invisible enemy, COVID-19 so virus. When are you going to run? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if uh, politics might be for, for me. Uh, <laughs> no, but I, I, for me, my observations were, you know, it, to me, I always look at things when it comes to what can benefit us the, the most and what now, can how help come? most people. Why do you do? I, I, I'm not disagreeing. I'm just interested that you're the way you're speaking. How come? Where did that all come from? This really came from just seeing just the suffering 
you know, the suffering, not necessarily only, not only in third world countries, but even, even in developed countries, seeing in the local communities, seeing, you know, people who struggle to live day to day and people who really, you know, who, who, who want to see, who just want to live a stable life and a happy life and to, and to raise a happy family. That is something that, that that's not much to ask for. At the end of the day, at the, at the end of the day, now, it's, it's, when you're talking, when you're talking to your friends, when you're coming, coming out and you probably should be studying law and you're not, and you're just talking to your friends. Do you talk about this? Yes. It's particularly with really, really good friends. Like I, I have a friend who I've known for over 20 years. Like, I, like we've known each other since kindergarten, basically. Um, very, very long time friend. And every time we talk about our lives and our, our careers, we always talk about what are some of the things that we can help in our local communities before we tackle the big fish, the big oceans first tackle the small communities, the small fish, the small oceans. It's the small ponds rather. What can we do to help? What can we do that can help everyone as many or, or if it can't help everyone as many people as possible, because sometimes not every one decision doesn't help necessarily everyone it can help most but then we also have to see what we can what other decisions that we can do to help the remaining people you know everyone everyone is well equal of course i mean we have the rule of law everyone's equal equal under the law but it's not just the legal aspect it's also a, a human aspect as well when you have these discussions with your friend or your friends do you find that these are widely held or do you think that you're a much smaller group I, I think that they are widely held, but we have different opinions on how we can, we can approach it. And this isn't necessarily just a political aspect. It's also just maybe based on our practical experiences. Some of us may have come from large cities. Some of us may have come from smaller cities. Some of us may have come from, far, from, from rural areas, from smaller or big, or big towns. You so, think that your generation obviously there are different the different views but your generation by and large would reflect the views that you're expressing to a certain extent yes not a hundred percent because again they had different experiences some of them would take a slightly different approach to it and say we would benefit one group one group of people first then afterwards we can move to another one if we can't tackle the, the most obvious problems and how can we tackle the, uh, the later problems. And that's, that's essentially a different method of approaching a, pro, uh, a problem. Whereas for me personally, I, I like to get to solve the problem, not, not necessarily as quickly as possible, but I want to make sure that when we solve the problem, everyone gets to enjoy the benefits of it. Do you think that COVID-19 and, um, now the absolute certainty that climate change has to be dealt with. Um, do you think that's going to affect the way your generation looks at Canada and then looks at the world? Yes, yes, that, that it, it already has, it already has. We had, at least in my social circle, we had talked about the, uh, the possibility of a pandemic or an epidemic situation and we have talked about how are we going to address this? How, as a society, can we address this? And, and for, for me, I had those discussions with my good friend, of course, for, 
for, for several years and really going back to when we were in high school, actually. And now that the pandemic isn't a hypothetical, it's actually happening. Okay, now how do we do it? Now, now it's, it's happening. People are now dying. So what do we do now? So how do we approach it? Of course, we're still, at least I'm still in school. My friend is, is currently working now in the workforce. But how can I and how can we, rather, work together to, to tackle these things. And really, again, COVID-19 and the climate change situation, that has been something that we have, that we have been talking about day in, day out for the last, uh, last month or so, especially when school started. Climate change has been something that I had learned along with a lot of people in my generation. We've learned this since, since middle school, since elementary school, global yeah. warming. So it's good that we had this initial exposure to this topic because then we can understand okay now that we know what's going on we know the risks we know the dangers what happens next well i think that i i really think that's if it is one of the big best pieces of good good news that i have heard you're telling you're telling me that you and your friends are essentially obviously there's no doubt that you would be affected by climate change and that you would be affected by uh, COVID, but that you're also saying you've got to do something about this, that you cannot let this constant uh, threat of these two go, that, that, that we've got to deal with them. Um, the reason that I ask you the question is I have been arguing very strongly that the G20, the first G20, next G20 is going to be in Saudi Arabia. It will then be followed by the one in India, uh, Italy, and then India, and that these have got to be the two issues that the globe deals with. I mean, it, it, you, there's a lot of other things to deal with, but if we don't deal with these two, if they don't make, we don't make these, in fact, the number one focus, and to hear that you're saying to me that the, these are the two drivers that are affecting your generation, and the only thing I can say to you is your generation has got to make a lot more, has, has got to make a lot more, lot more noise about this. Yes, yes, and I would say even before the pandemic, we've already been doing a lot of advocacy for that. I've known even people who are younger than me, who are still in their undergrad, they're actively posting about it. And not just posting, because posting is one thing, but stepping out there is a whole different thing altogether. They're stepping out. They're trying to advocate for policies. They're trying to lobby. They're trying to... I'll give you an example. Did you, by any chance, happen to look at the American presidential debate last night? Yes. Yes. And for our audience, this was recorded the day after the, uh, the, president, the first presidential debate between President Trump and Vice President Biden. Now, that presidential debate did not reflect the discussion that you and I are having now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just hearing a lot of people talking about it, and, and even for me, just, just looking at it, it was mostly just pointing fingers for me. It was a lot of pointing fingers. And it was something that I was just like, hmm. I mean, look, I, un I understand. I mean, it's a, it's a debate and you also have to try to attack each other's political, political uh, positions. But at the end of the day, there are some issues well, or most of the issues will eventually affect the American people, the American voting public. And whether if you're conservative or liberal, at least from my own personal standpoint, at the end of the day, you kind of have to hope at least that regardless of whoever's leading, the next term, the next four years of, of, of the United States that you would have, well, a, at least some form of a, of, a, of a good discussion, at least a discussion, a talking point between 
uh, uh, people from different political positions. And again, this is regardless of your political leaning. Yes, that's true. But, you know, and look, we all understand the circumstances of, of the debate last night and, and everything else. But nonetheless, think about this. You are in the process of saying that your generation understands the need that that that, uh, that climate change is the number one priority, that COVID is the number one priority along with it, and that these have got to be dealt with by the world and the world, all countries, certainly uh, the superpowers have got to take a lead on this. That's your position, and I agree with you. Um, and you're saying that this is what your generation feels, but what you're really also then saying, if you look at that debate last night, your generation is not represented uh, by, the, by the current political class over here in the United States. And we all understand this, but what I, the only, I don't raise it to point out the obvious. I raise it to demonstrate why your generation now has to be heard. Exactly. Exactly. And that is also a, a phenomenon that a lot, of, a lot of my colleagues have at least talked about in terms of we really have to represent ourselves, make our, our, our voices heard. Because we, we hear a lot about, you know, uh, we hear, we, oh, at least I hear a lot of, uh, of Gen Zs and millennials talking about, oh, you know, it's always about the baby boomers and all that kind of stuff. Well, it, it's been about the baby boomers because they were the most vocal in terms of, 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 political, of, of political issues for so many years. I mean, it really it wasn't until maybe the, the last five or six years, at least in my personal experience, where I saw a lot more people, both on, on the conservative and the liberal side, or on the, the right and, and, and left side, and in the center, regardless of their political leanings, that really started getting more involved with getting their voice heard. And that's at least, that's a, that's a good sign, you know, to have more intellectual, intelligent political discussions the question is, how long is this going to last and how long, how interested are people, regardless of their political background, regardless of their other political beliefs, how, how far do they want to take it? And that's also one of the reasons why I also wanted to bring you on, on, on the show as well, because a lot of people, I think, will take a lot of inspiration from you, despite the fact that you came from a very different generation. I think a lot of lessons that you learned in your career apply to us as well. The more things change, the more they stay the same. We already talked about honesty being so important. Honesty is the best policy. The cold hard truth isn't easy to hear. And that's a lesson that has been taught to us since time immemorial. Time immemorial. It's such an important lesson to learn. And, that, and once again, I, it's a lesson, one of the many lessons that I think that really we can learn not just from each other, but also from your generation, especially from your career as well. Yeah, you know, and, and and look, and I don't, I don't think we you want to get involved too much in politics. I, there's no doubt in my mind where the current Canadian government stands on these issues. The question that I, again I will put to you: We talked about the debate last night. There's going to be a G20 meeting held in Saudi Arabia in November, so it's 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 a month from now. Now, if we I um, the question that I will really put to you is: Take a look at the results of that. I have no idea which way it's gonna happen. I hope to God that they do deal with climate change. I hope they do deal, obviously, with, with, with COVID-19. Take a look at how far they get. Are, they, is it we, are we going to get a, a communique that really says some very nice things but has no plan ahead 
in which to deal with it? Or are we going to see people taking these very serious, recognizing that that's what the G20 has to deal with? And when we see that happen, if, the, if, they, do, if they do the right thing, then you, I think your generation should, should applaud publicly. And if they don't do the right thing, I think your generation should raise hand, heck. <laughs> yes, we will, ha- we will see what the, the decisions of the world will be done, what, what it will lead to, rather, not just in the next 50 years, but also in the next 10 or five years even. We have a lot of decisions on the line, especially as the obvious doesn't have to be restated, but well, we're, I'm restating again. We're in the middle of a pandemic. We're all socially distancing. At the time that this is recorded, we're in the middle of a second wave of cases, and it's not looking good. I mean, Ontario has already recorded its highest number of cases a few days ago at 700. That's the highest ever. And things are looking pretty tough. Things are looking very tough. But I, I think that as long as we keep our heads up, as long as we keep supporting each other, that is something that I think is going to go miles. And it's regardless of the different opinions that we have. It's regardless of the different stances that we have, the different political stances that we have. At the end of the day, the issues that face us, a lot of them are human issues. So are you on the side of humans? Are you on the side of, uh, are, you, are, are you with all of us? Or are you, are you against all of us as a human, as, as, as a species? And that's something that is so important. That's fundamental to our very existence, our very survival. Well, I look forward. I, 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 we should probably bring this to an end. But I, I look forward. I look forward to hearing from you. You've got to, But right now, you got to get your third year of law done. Yes. Right. <laughs> yes. And then you, and then are you? You're going to article. You're going to become a lawyer. Yes, that's the plan. Yes. All right. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of time to. Get your, get your third year into article, and then I think we better start hearing from you along <laughs> the lines that you've been talking about. <laughs> for sure, for sure. As we start right. getting, getting close to the end, I guess I have a couple of, of questions just to, to, to ask you based on your, on your experiences. Looking back on your time in politics, looking back on your time as prime minister, what are some of the things that, that you miss the most? What are some of the things that you enjoyed that you missed the most? Well, I, I think it's the, the, one of the things that you can do when you're in, when you're in government is you can make things happen. Um, I spend um, um, a certain amount of my time with the G20, as you and I just discussed, but I spend 80% of my time on indigenous matters. Um, I, I have a foundation. We have a number of really important programs. Uh, we started with a business course. Uh, a high school business course to give indigenous, young indigenous people an opportunity uh, to develop. We, we got involved in literacy. Um, we have a, another one, a major literacy course with 18 high schools. And then at the same time, um, we have developed a, a mother and child program along with the First Nations, the Métis and the Inuit. In other words, we facilitate, but the, the decisions and all of the thought comes from the First Nations themselves, or the Métis, or the, 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 um, the Inuit. And so we're working on all of these programs full-time, and that's where I spend all my time. And uh, it's going really very well, because, and a lot of it is because 
this is the youngest population in the world, in Canada. And so I spent my time there. I want to make that happen. Uh, I think that so much of our country is going to depend on the success of the Indigenous people. And I, I'm working on it. And what it's going to take is the cooperation of your generation. And I think if we have that, because what you're going to find, when you talk about biodiversity, this is really where the first, the indigenous people come to the lead, are, are in a position because of greater understanding than we'll ever have on this. Um, but it's the same thing in terms of entrepreneurship, in terms of how people develop. And I think that they're going to, I think indigenous people are going to be of massive importance to the development of Canada but they're going to have to work with you and you're going to have to work with them. And I think that's going to build the country. And my last question would be, how can my generation or not necessarily just my generation, regardless of the age of the person in law school, how can law students and current lawyers, how can they be leaders despite the pandemic and even past the pandemic? How can we be strong leaders? But you're going to be, you're not, you're, you're going to be, you're not going to have any choice. It's going to take strong leaders uh, to make this happen. And um, I think that uh, it's your generation that is going, your generation is going to have to take that lead and you're not going to be able to turn it down. Um, and so the, the, the question is not uh, how can you, how can you get in a position to do it? The question is when you get there, take advantage of that position to make the changes that you've talked about today. Well, this was an amazing conversation, Mr. Martin. It's, we discussed a lot of different topics today, along with your yeah. career and just really going forward with how much you've achieved over your time and also words of wisdom for people currently in, currently in law school. It has certainly been an enjoyable conversation. And once again, thank you so much for coming on to the show. This is really an amazing opportunity for, for, for the law school show to really have you on. And, and on behalf of everybody uh, on the law school show, all the producers and the hosts, thank you so very much for coming on to the show. Well, look, thank you for giving me the opportunity because you can get right down to it. Your career is a lot more important than mine. Take care. <laughs> okay. Well, and thank you to all of our audience members for tuning into this episode of the law school show. You can learn more about Mr. Martin's career and current initiatives at the Martin Family Initiative. I will leave a link in the episode description, which will lead you to his current work. And also a simple Google search of the right Honorable Paul Martin, and you'll see everything that he has accomplished over the years, everything that, that his career has taken him to over the many decades of, of his life. And once again, thank you so much, Mr. Martin, for coming on, on the show. Tune in next time for another episode of The Law School Show. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time, on The Law School Show.